we thought, well, it's probably a minor minor incident which won't result in much. And lo and behold, the French went into it. They raided the uh, offices of the lawyers, which is kind of pretty unheard of in, in these kinds of situations. One of the lawyers got up and said, look, who would have believed that uh, our client could be our greatest enemy? But, you know, that's exactly what, what's happened. They've fallen into a trap. I'm Nicola Tallent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. British drug baron Robert Dawes became known as the Pathfinder for a generation of criminals, including the Kinahan cartel, when he was one of the first to make Dubai his home and the headquarters of his trans-global empire. Ancient money transfer systems, a blind eye turned to suitcases of cash and easily attained residential permits all added to the attraction of the United Arab Emirates, for Dawes and for countless drug dealers that followed him to the Gulf Paradise. But the 55-year-old has found that not everything is foolproof, and that in the underworld the past can have a sneaky way of creeping up on you, no matter how far away you run. Today, I'm talking to journalist and author Carl Felstrom about the incredible story of Robert Dawes, who is now standing trial in a French court along with his lawyers, who say he tricked them into producing a false document to a drugs trial. Jailed for 22 years in France for cocaine smuggling, he now faces further imprisonment there, while the Netherlands are also lining up to try him for murder. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Carl, when I saw, I don't know why I was scrolling around Le Figaro because my French is okay, but not probably good enough mm. to read that uh, publication. But I did notice Robert Dawes and I just said to myself, what a perfect opportunity to come back to you. The mm. last time we spoke, he kind of fell into the conversation that we were having about money laundering and Dubai yeah. and various things. And he, he was an incredible character in the middle of it. Uh, and I felt got lost. I had wanted to come back about him just as an individual. Um, and what an opportunity. He's in court in Paris along with his two former lawyers and they're all mm-hmm. being accused of using a false document during his trial, um, right. which it looks to me from my Google Translate had something to do with him in the first place. Yeah, I mean, just to sort of give you some background to it all, um, uh, Dawes was uh, arrested over a 2013 seizure of cocaine, which was a record haul in Paris, a uh, record haul in French history at the time, um, uh, 1.3 tonnes of cocaine. And um, uh, basically, uh, it took another two years before he was arrested in uh, in connection with that. Um, in between that time, <clears throat> um, And he went to trial and was obviously convicted. In between that time, uh, between 2013, the seizure and 2015, um, he was recorded uh, on a Spanish uh, Guadalajara bug in a Madrid hotel, uh, claiming ownership of the Paris load and detailing um, his business and... um, the, the ports and uh, airports that he could get uh, uh, product into 
um, all over the world. Um, uh, basically, it was a business meeting with a Colombian and a Venezuelan. And um, the upshot of that was that 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 uh, bug basically was the main thrust of the prosecution against him in, in France. Now, halfway through the trial, his lawyers presented evidence that uh, the Spanish didn't have authorization for that bug and presented uh, a document which uh, in categoric terms claimed it wasn't legal. And um, <clears throat> the upshot of that was uh, checks had to be made during, while the case was going on, this was 2018 now, while the trial's going on. And um, the French prosecutors came back and said that they had made, checked 100% and that this document that, Dawes's lawyers had produced was a fake. Now, Dawes was subsequently convicted, as I said. After that, we thought, well, it's probably a minor, minor incident which won't result in much. And lo and behold, they, uh, the French went into it in, in a really big way. They raided the uh, offices of the lawyers, which is kind of pretty unheard of in, in these kinds of situations. And uh, the two lawyers who were representing Dawes were arrested, along with Dawes and one of Dawes' associates in Spain. And um, the French had been able to get hold of WhatsApp messages, which which indicated that Dawes and uh, an associate in Spain called Evan Hughes, who had acted uh, as his translator and had been become involved with the two lawyers in um, getting hold of documents and assessing them on behalf of Dawes. Um, what he'd actually done, uh, and the WhatsApp messages bore this out, there was a plan between Dawes and Hughes to change the text of some of the documents uh, which were going into the case file. And um, uh, one of those documents was the one which claimed that the Spanish had no authority to um, to bug that, uh, the hotel where Dawes confessed to uh, being owner, owner of the cocaine load. Okay. The trial of that uh, started a week and a half ago and actually finished last Tuesday. And um, uh, the upshot of it is, is that the prosecution have asked for uh, a three-year sentence for one of Dawes' lawyers, a guy called Joe Cohen Sabin, um, and a two-year sentence for um, his other lawyer, uh, um, Javier Nogueras. And um, those both those sentences were, would be uh, have a one-year suspension on them as well, so it took it down to two years and one year, but they would also be subject to six years uh, ban on their on their legal um, profession, uh, i.e., they won't be able to be lawyers anymore. Um, now they, this they seem out, completely well, scandalised by this. The two lawyers, Xavier Nogueras and yeah, Joseph yeah, yeah. I mean, they're well renowned lawyers, and they yeah, they, they went out, I suppose, like all defence teams, to do whatever they could to defend Robert Dawes and we'll go back into his his background to to show what a significant criminal he was by the time he was facing trial in France but like this document is purporting to be from some sort of a a warrant that was garnered yeah, in yeah, Spain it was the judge's authorization or non-authorization as Dawes wanted to to put it across uh, of of that 
that bug which was placed in the Madrid hotel in uh, in 2014 and um uh it had official stamps on it and everything but it had been altered to indicate that in fact the judge had, had not authorized the bug um but that so would be a can, wild yeah. thing for some lawyers to do if they knew that that had been altered surely i mean yeah, you know I mean, be a wild you've got thing to take the view. Yeah, you've got to take the view that they were completely, they completely walked into a trap, which was set by doors. Um, the, the the essence of which was all about um, the time factor involved in the trial. And these documents were presented quite late. Uh, the lawyer's assertion is that they didn't have time to check them and, and nor should it be 100% their responsibility to uh, um you know to check over the veracity of the of the document um and um the charges against them appear to indicate that in fact uh they're asking for lawyers to do more due diligence on these kinds of things and that um the lawyers have breached their professional um um responsibilities in not in not uh, checking um, beforehand. Now that's brought out a huge section of the legal profession in France who are saying, you know, if if these guys go down, uh, we're all in jeopardy in going into court because, you know, we simply don't have the time to to do this. And it, isn't it the courts and the and the, the court's responsibility to check the um you know to check the uh provenance of, of documents. So um yeah, I think the profession was quite surprised when the lawyers, uh, when the when the prosecution asked for the lawyers to be jailed. I mean, that's yet to be determined, and we'll know um, April the eighteenth what the judgment will be. But it's clearly um, it's clearly vexing the the legal profession in in uh, in France. Yeah. Now, whatever about a smaller document that maybe wouldn't have as big ramifications, you know, had mm. it been accepted by the court. I mean, the the a judge's order of whether or not uh, a bug could be placed and that, you know, what mm. was what was garnered from that, the harvest of that bug used. The entire mm. case was centred on this document, really, at the yes. point they produced it, either being believed or not. So that's a pretty big document to produce in front of a court. And I mean, if we yes. as journalists had something like that, we would have to check that it was correct, yeah? Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even if there's stamps on it or so on, you know, we, we get into situations a lot of the time where people send us stuff. And, you know, I remember when I was covering uh, Dawes' trial and all this was happening, I was getting, uh, I was in contact with some, still don't know who they are, but they were clearly involved in the case, uh, uh, either on behalf of Dawes or, or uh, Dawes' co-defendants. Um, co and uh, they were absolutely adamant that this, document was real and that um the whole case was going to go down the pan and that uh doors would be a free man as would uh, his co-defendants and you know i from my end i'd done my checks and i knew uh, as much as i could do that this was a completely bogus claim but um these guys were were convinced uh you know and and i guess i mean afterwards I, uh, the WhatsApp chats that were going on sort of got deleted and they obviously, the whole thing imploded for them because they'd been lied to either by, uh, you know, Dawes' uh, 
um, lawyers or by Dawes himself um, to, to uh, you know, giving them false hope that, that this case would collapse. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was quite a, um interesting way it, it all kind of panned out. I mean, there's other things involved in the case which were the, the Dawes had two lines that he could attack. One was the the the, the document claiming that um, you know uh, that there might not be authorization for the bug. And the second one was um, there was a, an informant used on the cocaine case who um, it subsequently become apparent was um, a, a major dealer um, from France called Sofiane Hambly. And um, uh, he was um, working for the head of what's effectively uh, the French National Crime Agency, um, Octris and uh, a guy called Francois Thierry. And uh, there's been some, maybe not underhand, but you know, there, there's been some bending of the rules that have been going on between that informant and the police officer to the extent that he lost his job and uh, Hambly was rearrested as well. Um, Hambly was apparently paid about 40,000 euros for uh, his work on the cocaine seizure job. Um, Dawes um, is, you know, as all of these guys, they know each other. They know the major yeah. players in 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 the environment. Dawes made an approach to um, the guy who was then Hambly's lawyer, uh, a guy called you'll recognise the name Joseph uh, Cohen Sabin, mm. and um, and. I think the idea was to create a storyline whereby Hambly might say, yeah, they set you up, mate, and I'm willing to say that. And uh, the, uh, the the plan, it appears, was to get Dawes's, uh, Dawes to get Hambly's lawyer on board on his case, which he did. Uh, so at one point, there was a slight, there was an overlap, which, you know, I said at the time, how could this be happening that this lawyer could be acting for these two guys at the same time? Mm -hmm. As it turned out, Joseph Cohen Sabin had um, alleviated himself from Hambly's um, uh, uh, work as 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 uh, as his client, and um, and then gone on to work for on Dawes's team, um, and there was certainly a point in the trial where the Dawes's team believed that Hambly was going to appear on a video link and say some of the things that I just said and get Dawes off. It didn't happen. Hambly decided against it. And, uh, and you know, Dawes was left with, with uh, you know, carrying the whole thing, really. It so, sounds like yeah, at, the, at the centre of it all and what happened to, to those lawyers was maybe... Uh, akin to the story of the scorpion and the frog and Rob, Robert Dawes being the scorpion in this case. And mm. when you delve yeah. further back into his past, you see that that is exactly what he is. He's an extremely sort of intelligent character of the underworld that has been around a long time and mm. who not only has been a step ahead of the law, but he's also been a step ahead of his contemporaries. So he was a big yeah. player in the Costa, like at the end yeah. of the 90s. Yeah. I mean, two things, uh, I mean, I'll go on to that in a minute, but two things from that is, is one, um, you know, during this recent forgery trial, um, 
um, one of the lawyers got up and said, look, you know, who, who, who would have believed that uh, our client could be our greatest enemy? But, you know, that's exactly what, what was, what, what, what's happened. They've fallen into a trap, uh, I believe, and, and didn't uh, maybe realize that uh, how manipulative this guy could be. Um, and, um, you know, I think, uh, and secondly, um, Dawes' own lawyer got up in, in court in, in the same uh, case this week and said, how could this possibly be, you know, uh, uh, my client, uh, an Englishman who it's claimed is a massive drug lord who is simply a petty criminal, how could he possibly know how the French law works on these things and know that there might be a way of of uh, introducing something that could, um, you know, create uh, a question mark over the whole case. And, you know, um, Dawes is not stupid. He knows the system inside out, you know, and, and you know, as we know, uh, whatever his lawyer says, he is not a petty criminal. You know, his, his rap sheet might say, might say something slightly different. But um, and Carly also not- showed in the past that he's perfectly capable of learning the the loopholes in any legal system, like he did in mm. the in the Emirates when he was there um, yeah, yeah. and facing extradition. But we'll maybe we'll come to that as we we go through a little yeah. bit of his career. So bring us back to the late nineties on the Costa, which was mm. party time for a lot of the criminals. Yeah, I mean he was going out there. I guess he'd come out of prison. I, I think it's around ninety six. Um, having already, you know, set up a, a quite a, a large uh, drug network within across four prisons, which were supplying um, prisoners, uh, and also he was working on with people on the outside as well. <coughs> um, this was uh, a hugely successful business that. Um, that um, you know, by the, the the words of one of his own runners inside the prison, um, you know, who uh, fairly low level uh, had made 140 grand just in a year working uh, four doors as as a as a runner inside the prison, um, and uh, yeah, he came out of the prison system round about 96 and um, started to build up the network which which we now know he controls um you know across several countries um by moving out to spain um i mean he'd been he'd been uh doing quite a lot of business um up and down the country before that happened um and got slightly spooked when um there was uh um uh, some of his associates were arrested alongside um, uh, some guys in the uh, northeast uh, family called the MacPartlands, who, who he was working with, who were quite a large uh, family of uh, organised crime group based there. And um, he got spooked because uh, he thought that he knew that there was an operation being set up against him, and he thought that maybe he would be better off in another country. Uh, The idea at that point, even though his extradition from Spain was pretty easy still, um, he thought that I think that if you're in another country, you, you 
create another set of hurdles for um, for a British police force to um, negotiate. And you know, even though it's only twenty four years ago, um, uh, at that point in time, really the relationships weren't brilliant between different European countries on. Uh, law enforcement uh, and you know joining up and targeting people and so on. And Dawes would have been what in his late twenties, early thirties at this point. Yeah, he's born born February seventy two. So what he would have been, um, so he would have been uh, yeah. late twenties. Yeah, yeah, when he went out to mm. Spain. Yeah, and uh, already by that by that account, um, was was uh, a multi millionaire. At that point, uh, I mean, he was able to put down a million quid on or a million euros on a on a villa which he bought um, down on the south coast of Spain, uh, Costa del Crime area. Um, that was uh, sort of around two thousand. Um, so yeah, um, and then he 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 starts turning up a lot on people's radars, uh, particularly Guardia Civil. And uh, at the same time as that, the British have an operation um, which had been targeting him, but since he moved to Spain, it focused more on his brother and um, his setup in England. Um, and if eventually his brother was busted and uh, you know sentenced to twenty plus years, um, but Dawes escaped, and uh, well, not escaped literally, but he he. He didn't uh, face any kind of um, investigation after um, after his brother had been um, lifted. So he he was you know operating um, you know fairly freely. Uh, he he linked up with I mean a lot of lot of names turn up during that time. Um, there a guy called Carl Pettit who was living in Madrid. Uh, actually renting a house of an ex-Real Madrid footballer at the time. He was from uh, the Midlands as well. And um, he was a, uh, Dawes was using him as as a sort of lieutenant, I guess. Um, and uh, Carl Pettit had a lot of links into some of the Lon- London uh, groups, organised crime groups. And so you get a lot of names start c- coming into the f- frame at that time, including David Hunt, known as the Longfellow. Um, Pettit gets busted and um, uh, eventually he gets extradited back to England. Again, Dawes suffers nothing, you know, and, um, you know, is carrying on his business. And it's not until we get to 2007, by which time he's uh, flitting between Dubai and Spain, that um, he runs into trouble over a 200 kilo load of cocaine, which is seized in Madrid. And that's what starts his um, sort of battle against extradition from Dubai, uh, which ultimately was successful. And 2007 seems to be, and you know, he's obviously moving hash and coke and amphetamines through the Netherlands and across Europe up to then, mm. making God knows how many millions. But he... Um, is one of the first out to Dubai to the United Arab Emirates. Two thousand and seven sounds like an early time for somebody yeah. to be already over and back yeah, there and a bit settled. Definitely. I mean, even before that, I think he was making trips there. So far as I can tell, around two thousand and four, 
Um, you know, so that is quite very early in this sort of, you know, the wild west of Dubai, so to speak. It, it, it's very early days. Um, what attracted you know, them to there at that point? I think the fact that you could literally take a suitcase full of cash over there at that point. I mean, you, you can still get away with it now, but it's a little more tricky. But you could take a suitcase full of cash and, and uh, you know, a million quid in a suitcase if you could fit it in there. And um, and you wouldn't even be questioned about it at the airport if, if it was opened. Mm. Um, uh, you know, the checks that were done on on setting up businesses, et cetera, et cetera, it was... It was, I think, 2002, uh, it was not long after 9-11 and huge amounts of American um, uh, uh, money was going into Dubai. And I think the Dubai authorities suddenly realized this was could be a good cash cow for them. And they opened up uh, the potential for European people to set up businesses in Dubai um, you know, relax the rules a lot more. It was a lot easier. Um, you know, at, at some point, all you needed really was a local sponsor and you were away. You could trade there. You've got tax-free zones. Um, you know, nobody's nobody's checking, you know, whether you're laundering money or not. Um, you know, and, and it's easy to invest as well. And the other thing was, it's very easy to direct. If you've already got a network set up, it's a very easy place to direct your 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 um, network from. You know, you haven't got that worry like uh, some of them uh, have had at times in Europe, where you know they step off onto the street and they don't know whether they're going to get blown away or not, or um, get lifted by uh, law enforcement. So. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it felt to them a very safe place. Obviously, things have changed since then, um, but um, it's still a mixed bag to some extent. But things are changing in the right direction as far as law enforcement are concerned because they're getting much better relationship with the the um, uh, United um, Arab Emirates uh, law enforcement people. And uh, I think as we talked about previously, there's now liaison officer from the UAE who is based in The Hague, um, which is a, a brand new thing. It means they're sharing intelligence. Um, it means that uh, there's a there's a level of cooperation going on that wasn't going on before. Mm-hmm. Of course, one of the things that Dawes discovered when he was there was this Hawala uh, money laundering, or sorry, money mm. transfer, as it was called, yeah. an ancient system of money transfer, which became a bit retro for the drug dealers when they went out. They realized mm. this suited them. There was no paper trail and you could have mm. money from one country to the next, literally, uh, with a phone call as such. But yeah. he didn't only discover that, he also started to really consider the laws that were in place in the Emirates and they must be, you know, for somebody coming from Europe, it must be a little bit of a degree to to understand the laws. I mean, you know, we're sitting here and we'll hear about somebody mm. getting convicted or arrested for something that, you know, we do every day. Um, and yet, you know, they have the entire legal system. But he managed to work out that there was a couple of things that would protect him out there should they ever catch up with him. And of course, the red Interpol notice was issued for him and he was eventually arrested in Dubai. Was that 2011 mm-hmm. or is that? 
That was 20, Earlier. that was uh, 2008. Okay, 2008. So, yeah. so there's this red Interpol notices is uh, he's arrested and he's put into prison there because while there is no extradition treaty, they were going to send him back because he's wanted on these serious charges. So it's, mm. you know, uh, but while in prison, I think he, he, he realizes that the law can be used to his advantage. Yeah, I mean, at that time, I don't, I don't know whether this law is still um, there now, but at that time, if you bounced a check um, uh, and a complaint was made, um, then there was a mandatory three-year sentence. And that obviously took uh, precedence over any kind of... Um, Anything you were um, wanted for anywhere else, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, uh, it, it became the, the, the primary... Uh, charge and uh, so um, he became aware of this, and it, it, in effect, he he arranged for a check from his one of his companies to back to bounce, and um, and suddenly uh, he's got a three year window of opportunity to to find loopholes in in the Spanish case against him uh, because he can't be extradited. Um, from Dubai, and you know, I mean, a lot of, lot of, you know, there's been a lot of um, true stories about what happens in in uh, Dubai prisons, and there's been a lot of bullshit as well. Uh, I mean, Dawes, Dawes's people would claim he was, you know, in in rat infested cells, and and you know, nothing could be further from the truth. He he was he was, uh, you know, being well looked after. He could order takeaways. Um, he could uh, uh, have his own uh, special meeting room when um, his bogus lawyer came in to visit him. He was actually bringing in um, new SIM cards for him. Um, certainly people I spoke to who, who went uh, into the prison to meet him have told me about, you know, uh, being brought cups of tea by the guards and being left to their own devices to to chat. And, um, you know, uh this is not, um, you know, this is mana from heaven for a guy like that. You know, he's he's in he's in control of his own environment. Um, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that some serious business took place while he was in uh, custody in Dubai, as in, um, um, you know, loads of cocaine. Um, going through um, his hands, not 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 literally, but uh, yeah, on he's his directing own. it. He's directing, he's directing it from, it from his from, prison from, cell, from his, prison his luxurious cell. prison cell, shall we say? Um, yeah. So the time eventually did run out for him, and he went back to Paris, which is where we started the conversation, where he was mm. convicted in relation to the cocaine, and um, he's now facing another couple of years in that sentence. But he's also wanted in the Netherlands. So yes, he's. Right. Is he finished? I know they say that his assets are hidden. So he's wanted in the Netherlands, by the way, for a murder. Um, mm. And yeah, maybe just a, tell so us a bit about that because it's slightly yeah. unusual. So um, 2002, uh, um, he's operating. He's got a, a couple of cells operating in, in Netherlands, um, moving product. Um, and um, working in particular with a guy called Gwyneth Martha, who was a notorious Dutch criminal. 
Um, and uh, during that time, in, uh, there came a point at which uh, a consignment of cannabis um, over a ton um, had gone missing. And uh, Dawes's people believe that two women who had been doing translating work and housekeeping for a guy called Tony Spencer, who was one of Dawes's associates, um, had run off with these drugs and, and, and sold them to a, to a Dutch drugs gang. And um, so uh, Dawes's people, uh, because Dawes's money was involved heavily in, in that shipment, um, uh, Dawes took control of the situation, told Tony Spencer to sort it out because the women had been working ostensibly for Tony Spencer. And um, <clears throat> Tony Spencer's people burgled uh, one of the girls' uh, properties in Spain and got an address book. And from that, they discovered that uh, one of the girls uh, had a brother who lived in um, a Dutch uh, city called Grilligan. And um, so Dawes sent his people up there, along with Gwyneth Martha and uh, a couple of other Dutch heavies. And I think they were there primarily to make sure that the message was understood because uh, none of Dawes's people spoke Dutch. So um, Gwyneth Martha was there to kind of add a bit of heaviness to the to the to the situation and make it plain that these people meant business. So um, a guy called Daniel Sowerby handed over the note. He'd been told by Dawes this was a number to ring. Um, Sowerby handed over the, the uh, number, which was on the back of a, a Rizzler packet, uh, to um, Gerard Meisters, who was the brother of one of the women who had gone missing with the drugs. And uh, Gerard hadn't seen his sister for uh, quite a few months um, and um, didn't really know what she was up to, suspected she might be up to something a little bit dodgy. But, you know, um, he, he was completely shocked by the fact that these guys, heavies had turned up on his doorstep and were asking him about his sister. Anyway, he did ring the number, but, you know, I believe he asked for the name of who it was he was dealing with and it all went quiet and um, there was no more contact. Uh, in the meantime, Gerard had been to the police uh, in Grinnigan and told them about what happened. They were a bit nonplussed by it, didn't really mean much to them. Uh, you know, they hadn't heard anything. There was nothing on reports about this. So it was kind of completely mystery to them why this guy was being threatened and um uh so they didn't put in the usual safeguards where they they told him to maybe don't stay there tonight go away and you know we'll we'll check it all out and um he he went back there four days later and he'd literally been in the house turned on his computer he'd been in the house like literally a couple of minutes and the doorbell went and uh, a guy shot him seven times on the doorstep and he was dead. And uh, so <coughs> the, um, the Dutch police suddenly had a really serious case on their hands. Um, 
they eventually get to that was November 2002 and uh, they eventually got to uh, the stage where they could uh, tap some phones uh, they didn't have doors they could only tap phones that were within the Netherlands so although Tony Spencer was in Spain they were able to get conversations because some of the people he was speaking to were were on phones in the Netherlands that the Dutch were bugging. So they picked up the story, which was basically the Thelma and Louise story. These two had gone on the run with the drugs and they were going to be punished and blah, 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 blah. And Tony Spencer says on the, on the, on, on one of the taps, you know, um, you know, we, we, we had to do it to, uh, to not lose face. You know, we had to send a message. Um, now, I then came into the picture a few years after that. They they convicted the driver and the guy they said who shot Meisters. Uh, and the case was that they were working on behalf of a big boss, a uh, British drug man who uh, had given them all the orders. Uh, but none of the defendants would speak about that. It was the Omerta code came into play. And uh, that also they were, they were worried about, you know, even if they did talk, uh, what might happen to their relatives. So there was silence on that. The Dutch went ahead with the case. They left Dawes' name dangling and didn't do anything about it. And um, um, we get we get to about 2011, and I made a request to Daniel Salvi's lawyer to, to speak to him. He's serving a life sentence in, in Netherlands. And uh, it took two years, but then eventually, or if, initially his lawyer said he knows nothing about this guy Dawes, you know, blah, 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 blah. Uh, he's not going to be of any help to you. Then an email landed two years later on my on my computer from his lawyer saying he wants to talk. So I thought, great, you know, he took about another six months before we could set something up. And then we began to speak on the phone and, you know, the detail that was coming out was without doubt, uh, really significant. You know, this is the first time this guy's talked, you know, I've not even printed any of the stuff that he's, he's talked about but um you know he, he's fair to say he's talked in detail about what happened before the shooting what happened after the shooting and that every order he took came via a one-to-one -one phone from robert Dawes. um myself and daniel had a conversation early on about you know hey look you you're on a prison phone here there might be some things you don't want to talk about and he said well we'll, we'll see how it goes and um you know, I'm aware that I'm on a prison phone, so you know they maybe they'll they'll listen in. Or that. as it turned out, they were listening in, and they came to me um, probably about seven or eight months later and said, uh, "Look, we have a, we have these conversations. They're very significant. We've reopened the case. Um, would you be prepared to be a witness?" And I said, "Well." Um, I'll have to talk to Daniel Salby about it because ultimately, although you have the recordings, um, he's a source and it's a very tricky ethical situation as to what we do next. Um, Salby's sort of response was, you know, well, I kind of guessed that would happen anyway. And Did he um, land you in it? 
Did it land me in it? Did he land you in it? Because I'm sure you're a reluctant witness in this case. Well, I mean, uh, I'm reluctant in the sense that I didn't want to breach any sort of journalistic codes on um, sources. So I went back to him and I checked what what his position was on it. And he said, I said, look, I'm thinking about making a statement here. They still need my authority to use the stuff. Um, but, you know, ultimately, how do you feel about it? And, and he was kind of like, well, you know, okay, there's nothing we can do about it. Let's go ahead. And uh, that's what I did. As a consequence of which, um, in November, just gone, I went over to Netherlands at the request of the Dutch prosecutor. And we had a four hour session where I um, was questioned about my statement that I'd already made in 2018 and uh, questioned by Dawes's lawyers. Um, and, uh, and, and basically that, that material now goes into the trial stage of things, which will happen later this year. But it was interesting because um, they really took security um, very, very seriously. Um, I was under an assumed name when I arrived in the Netherlands. That name changed again when I got to the hotel they provided me with. And um, I was with the police literally, uh, apart from, you know, obviously in my hotel room, I was with the police um, every moment that, that, that I was that I was there. And uh, that included going for cigarette breaks and, and so on. And um, when, when we were driving to uh, the hearing, which was, took place in, a, in a, what's effectively a fortified police station, um, when I went to the hearing, um, the, uh, we, we, were, we were on our way there about sort of half an hour from the destination, still didn't know where I was going. Um, and the Dutch police officer in the front said, uh, yeah, we've just told the judge and the rest of the um, uh, people who are attending where the hearing is going to be taking place. Uh, so they only knew half an hour before the hearing started where it was going to be. I mean, they were in the same area, but they, the location was kept secret. And are they so rattled in relation the, to the Marengo trial and all that has happened in the Netherlands? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it all goes back to, um, you know, um, the situation with Peter de Vries being shot and uh, the people involved in that case, the brother of the yeah. state witness and so on. Yeah, they, they had a really big shock, I think, um, that they realised that things have changed. These guys are coming after, mm. you know, anybody who poses a risk now to their business uh, and journalists are high on that list. You know, they, they, you know, they don't see us as doing our job. They see us as, as, as part of the state uh, structure, which is preventing them from, from enjoying their profits. You know? Well, in particular, when you're asked to cross the line from journalist to witness because of a mm. conversation you had as a journalist, I mean, that is a serious sort of mm. conundrum that you faced. Um, and yeah, it is. I mean, partly as well. I mean, my thought at the time was I must do this because um, because of the family, you know, mm. 
the Meisters family, Cohen, the son, who I've, I've you know had a lot of contact with, um, and so you know they're they're, they're not um, so obsessed with the case that they want to they want to get a positive result. They they just wanted to get to the stage where this could be brought to a court and a judge could hear the evidence and you know whichever way it goes they will respect that um but the point was they were very frustrated that at the time when they dealt with the case back in uh 2006 that doors hadn't been um wasn't on the, mm. on, on the on the prosecution list yeah so the situation um, is he's in prison in France and as soon as he finishes that sentence which may be increased due to this falsified mm. document um, yeah. He will then be sent directly to the Netherlands if they will they will hear the trial and convict him possibly or not yeah. in his absence. So he would then, if he's convicted in relation to the murder, he'll go straight to the Netherlands. But uh, which is a little bit more of a comfort zone that he's not out on the streets, I suppose, when for anybody involved in this. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, uh, he still appears to have serious assets. But what I wanted to ask yeah. you about him finally, and maybe this is... Um, something you can't answer, but he used that Hawala system and that has seems to have now been busted as a result mm. of the investigations into the Kinahan Group and others in the United Arab Emirates. Are his assets hidden somewhere within that structure? And is he now possibly looking at all his, you know, his, his jewels being found? Yeah, I mean... Um in terms of if you place him alongside a lot of other criminals, there's been a there's been a a sort of muddied um, picture as far as his assets are concerned, because primarily there haven't there hasn't been a deep dive from any any particular agency in into it. I mean, Guardia Civil have done their bit, um, the British have done a little bit. But they're reluctant to get heavily involved, really. Um, and I, you know, they've traced some things, but there's a lot of stuff that they haven't traced and have no idea where it where it is because they haven't done that deep dive into it, um, like they might do with, you know, like they've done with the Kinahans, for instance. Um, it's it's even kind of a bit of a question mark as to where the responsibility for that lies. I mean, the French have fined him 30 million euros on the cocaine case. Um, And I think he gets extra time if he doesn't pay that up. Mm. But uh, that would mean that the French would have to launch their own investigation into seizing assets and, and, you know, so on. And I've seen no sign of any willingness to do that. The Spanish did their own little bit. Um, when he was arrested, but that was really just a fairly superficial kind of look at things. They did trace a property in um, Dubai, which is worth an estimated 10 million, could be more than that now, and possibly some links to uh, property in South America, but nothing specific. Um, But what we do know is he had, you know, roughly... 60 or more um, points of contact with financial people um, in, sorry, points of contact with financial people in 60 
different countries. Hmm. So that tells you how widespread his money might be. Hmm. Um, A shrewd investor. uh, Yeah, exactly. But I mean, uh, at the end of the day, um, you know, the Dutch case could be end game for him because he's still got, you know, he's only 50 just and uh, looking at coming out at the moment from the French case um, around about 2030. <clears throat> and, um, uh, you know, so he's still got a bit of a glimmer of hope there. If he gets convicted on the Dutch case, it's life, life. Yeah. It will be a life, life sentence. There will be no way out of it. Mm. And, uh, you know, that for him would be kind of unthinkable, I think. And yeah. he would find that very difficult, mm. you know. As would anyone. I mean, from going from the lifestyle and, and the life he had to, uh, you know, looking down the barrel of dying in prison, I'm sure mm. is really a lesson for many out there still hoping to retire on their wealth that, yeah. you know, it can all come a cropper. But look, Carl Felstrom, we come back about this one again when we see how he how he gets on. Yeah, and obviously that that case in the Netherlands is hugely interesting. So for the moment, thank you very much. That's great. Thanks. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Clodamini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. <laughs>